I want to begin with a story that happened last night. First, just a little bit of background. In the Jewish world, there is this concept called Daf Yomi. Daf means a page, Yomi means a day, and every day they study a page of Talmud. This program was kick-started, I think, in the 1920s. Uh, one of the great rabbis at the time had this brilliant idea, let's study the Talmud, but not just individually or as a community, but as a nation. And we'll start from the first page of the Talmud, and every single day, rain or shine, uh, snow or sleet, Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av, no matter what, every single day, there's another page. And over the course of seven years, the entire nation will finish the entire Talmud. And they'll have a massive celebration and start it again. And now they're in the 13th cycle, I think. I think in 2012 was the uh, was when they completed the 12th cycle. And they had a celebration in MetLife Stadium, where the Jets and the Giants play in New York, plus all over the world. So it's a huge thing. There's hundreds of thousands of people studying Tafiomi across the world. And everyone's on the same page, quite literally. Anyhow, in Houston, Texas, 15 years ago, they began the Houston chapter of Dafyomi. Now, they started in the middle of the cycle, in the Talmud section of Sanhedrin. And one of the torch rabbis, in fact, Rabbi Yaakov Nagel, he led it, and he still leads it today. And thus, they finish the Talmud every time in the middle of the cycle when they get to the same juncture at when they started. So seven and a half years ago, they finished it eight years ago, really. They finished the Talmud the first time, and they made a huge celebration. And now, in the summer, in July, they finished the Talmud a second time. And they were going to make a massive, or they made a massive celebration, but they didn't want to make it in July, because July, there's no one in town, so they decided to push it off to September. Now, as we all know, a massive cataclysmic weather event happened to Houston uh, about a week before the scheduled event. And they had a hall, and they had a caterer, and they had planned dignitaries to come visit. There was a whole plan what they're going to do, and they had, they had to postpone it. And they postponed it to this past Shabbos, to January, whatever it was, the 18th and 19th. And they made a huge plan. And the plan included like a dozen dignitaries from all across the Jewish world who are going to come and spend the Shabbos in the, in the neighborhood. And they're going to have they had the great uh, one of the Rosh Yeshivas, the heads of the yeshiva of the biggest yeshiva in America in Lakewood. He was here. He's here for Shabbos. And they're going to have all these kinds of events and speeches. And finally, Matzah Shabbos, Sh- uh, after Shabbos, last night, they're going to have in a local hall a massive celebration with speeches and dancing and live music and an amazing buffet. It's going to be wonderful. So I, I had a problem because I, I have to prepare a class every Saturday night after Shabbos. So I checked the schedule, and it turns out that it, uh, the party begins at 8.30. Now, Shabbos is over at about 6.30. 8.30 is when the, the plan starts, the program starts. I got plenty of time or whatever. At least I could get my plans started and begin, begin the process of getting ready, and then I'll finish maybe after we're done. Anyhow, there's an email that shows up uh, last night at 7.33, uh, and it reads as follows. Looking for missing man, 71 years old, dementia. That's the subject line. Now, Rabbi Nadel, who he oversees the Dafyomi, 
So he's, he's making this big celebration. You know, he's been teaching the Talmud every single day for seven and a half years or for 15 years, second cycle. Unbelievable celebration. So his whole family comes in from New York and his kids are all in town. Everyone's here to celebrate. Now his father-in-law, sadly, has dementia. And at the end of Shabbos, he disappears. And it's quite common for people with dementia to wander off. And frequently they wander off and they're never found again because they just keep on walking and they disappear. They disappear. It's quite common. So it's literally an hour before this massive event that's been in the works for a year and everything's in place and there's a huge celebration planned and the father-in-law of the guest or the, the primary individual of the event is missing. So let me read the rest of the email here. Uh, Mrs. Nagel's father has gone missing towards the end of Shabbos. He walked out of Yon Israel. He has not been found yet. We need a significant number of people to walk the enclave in the neighborhood. And let's uh, let's try to figure out how to find him. They sent the picture to him. And what I want to tell is just what happened as a result. Because it's, it's so – it's emotional almost as to like what happened. Now, in America today, there's more searches for adults with dementia or Alzheimer's, then there are for kids. It used to be that the kids would disappear, you got to call the cops, whereas the kid, hopefully the kid's safe. Nowadays, there's more adults who have cognitive impairment that get lost. And the problem is, is they get lost and they think they're walking home, but they could just walk anywhere. And they could walk into busy streets. And from my research, I found that they're unusually attracted to bodies of water, which is, of course, terrifying. And they like to walk along the electric lines, and they have a tendency to favor their dominant hand. So if they're righties, they'll head to the right. If they're lefties, they'll head to the left. And they get disoriented, and it's quite common for them to just keep on walking and to just get dehydrated but not realize that they're hydrated and keep on walking. And many times it's fatal. Many, many times there's an abundance of times where uh, the, law, the, the search just keeps on going and they just can't find them. And now we have an event in an hour, and the man's missing. What typically people do is they have trackers that they put on their loved ones with GPSs to keep track of where they are. Alternatively, they disguise the doors. They make the doors look like bookshelves so they won't walk out. Or they cover up, they take away the whole – like, what are you going to do? The person is just out of danger to themselves. It's it's just so sad. Anyhow, so what what to do? So they call the cops, and the cops uh, are dragging their feet. But a an effort was mobilized like you've never seen before. I get this email. I'm I'm by my computer. I jump up. I say I'm out. I'm gonna go look for look for him. And I'm walking driving around the neighborhood, and I see people already out. Like it's the email's been sent five minutes ago. People are out with the flashlights. Everyone's looking in their backyards. Everyone's trying to figure out what you know what we could do. Up and down. Everyone's combing the area. I decided I'm gonna go a little bit further out of the outskirts of the, and, and the neighborhood into the. So I'm driving all around. I'm and. As I'm driving, I'm following the updates on the emails, and then they started a group chat where on WhatsApp. And before you know it, there's 160 people on the group. And everyone's updating. I have the group over here. I can still show it to you. Everyone's updating where they're checking, what's happening, what's and, – and then they start checking the video footage from – who has video footage in the neighborhood? Can we see where, where he went? So someone uploads a, uh, a video of from one of the houses that happens to have a video uh, by the street, and they see a man walking. Is it him? Is it not him? What do we know? 
Someone says, I saw him leaving Shul and going east. So all the direction starts going east. Now, I'm, I'm driving. I said, I, I'm thinking he's, he's probably longer. I found out that he's a walker. He likes to walk. And he could be walking at three, four miles an hour. It's been an hour. It's been two hours. I'm driving so far away and I'm just going through, just putting my brights on, putting my blinkers on, my hazards on, and just driving. There's this nerve center they set up in the shul. And they tell everyone to come and split into groups. And then they found out that he went all the way to Fondren from our neighborhood. Did he make a right or did he make a left? We don't know. I said, well, I, I had spent so much time looking north, i.e. that he made a left. I said, you know what? I'm going to go south. I went to the end Israel. I picked up some volunteers. We got flashlights. And we're driving around the neighborhoods. And everywhere I go, I see people walking around with flashlights looking for him. I did an amazing effort, just mobilized instantly to try to find this person. Meanwhile, there's the event that's supposed to happen. And there's people there. And the place is, is just totally dead. There's nothing, there's no one, there's tons of food, and everything's ready to go. And there's a few people that are there, but nothing's happening. So, of course, the people that could be searching are searching. The people that can be searching, what do we do? What do Jews do when we're in a bind? We pray. And how do we pray? Frequently, they, they say the Tehillim, the Psalms. Instantly, they set up a group. They divided up the whole Psalms, and they're saying the whole Psalms. And in the uh, celebration hall, they're also saying Tehillim. They're also saying the Psalms. I'm walking. I have these two people with me. We have flashes. I'm walking up and down these bayous. I'm looking like under under the overpasses, <laughs> like where druggies hang out. It's kind of kind of creepy. I'm sort of falling down myself. I'm just thinking, like, how many ways does this go wrong? And I'm, and I'm doing the math. Like, Houston is a city that is a hundred times larger than Jerusalem. It's it's huge, and he could go in any direction. And you know, he's an he's a man walking. And how, how are you going to find him? And is he likely to be walking on the main street, on a side street? I read that sometimes they have a tendency to lock themselves up because they don't want to be caught, and they're deliberately evading the search parties. What's going to be? Thankfully, as I'm walking, I get one of these updates. We found him. Someone was just driving Fondren and 59, which is very, very far away from our neighborhood. They just see a man with the hat. He was still dressed for Shabbos. He's wearing his hat and his tie and his Shabbos shoes and his suit, and he's just walking. And they just see him. They got him. And it's like instantly all this terror and all the sadness just turns into joy. And they they quickly make a U-turn. They grab him in the car. And the guys who found him said, like, he's, like, telling him, no, you're going the wrong direction. Like, he, he knows which way they're going. You know, I, I think he might have been looking for home, but he's traveling now five miles away. And they brought him back to his uh, children's home. And everyone's so excited. And everyone, you know, now it's already 10, almost 10 o'clock. They found him. And everyone's going back now to the party. And uh, it was just incredible jubilation. Like, I, I got there and, like, everyone's, like, on a high about what just happened and how, you know, how badly this could have been. Just think about a family that's investing and the whole neighborhood investing so much time and effort in this party. And it's just such a downer because, you know, the man's missing. And what, how easily it could have been that they wouldn't find him and they wouldn't find him. And, well, you know, well, what's going to be? Just think about what an indictment it would be on the community where you're trying to celebrate Torah and it just gets totally torpedoed by a tragic event. But they found him. He was fine. Everyone, of course, is very excited. And they go, they go to the celebration. 
and everyone's there, and everyone's dancing, everyone's on a high. His children came, and then he showed up, and it was just such a joyous event. Uh, sadly, I didn't get to prepare too much uh, for my class, so sorry if you have to suffer a little bit as a result. Uh, but I, I, I was just really thinking about this. You know, what, what does this say about the Jewish community? We, we are a Jewish community here, but there's Jewish communities everywhere. I think it really does say a lot about about the nation at large. You know, we have a lot of problems. And, you know, you, you don't have to look very far to find, well, there's lots of cases of depression, and there's suicide, and there's drug abuse, and there's divorce, and there's poverty, and there's sadness, and there's loneliness. There's a lot of problems that we could that we could outline in the community. I think it's it's worthwhile to like kind of zoom out a little bit and look about and look at the the positive aspects of the Jewish communities worldwide. The fact that you know how many times you drive down the highway, you see Amber Alert or Silver Alert, and you hope that you know like oh gosh another one right. And they sometimes send those notifications to your phone. Your phone starts buzzing like crazy. Amber Alert: This kid is missing or this adult is missing. And how common is it? You, oh, I hope they find it. It's not my problem. Thank God. It's really nice that they have the system to get everyone involved. But generally speaking, people don't say, this is my problem. I'm going to go hunting down these people and find them. But when you're part of a community, like it, it, it just it shows that there's a certain sensitivity, a certain unity, and a certain understanding of the fact that you know one life, what, what it means. We are told, of course, in the Talmud, that if you save one life, it's like you save the whole world. But I really think that it says something about the community where people really abide by that principle. Everyone, everyone mobilized, hundreds of people mobilized and scrapped whatever previous plans they had and went out and said, give me some flashlights, let's go, let's go, let's go find them. And what are the odds if there was just his family and just the neighbors looking for them, it's, they probably wouldn't have found them. Uh, maybe they would have found them later, who knows what could have happened. But I think it does say something, and I think it's 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 we're we're very accustomed to hearing about what goes wrong. That's a micro and a macro problem. You know, if you ask people today, like how does today compare? I'm like, oh, there's so many problems because that's what we hear in the news. But the reality is that there's never been a better time, a more peaceful time on planet Earth than the absolute present. It's so never happened where there's so many people who are out of extreme poverty and so many so much stability in the world and so much and so little warfare yes there's still problems but you would imagine if you just had a, a dose of of cons- news consumption you would say well oh my gosh it's the worst time to ever but the truth is like by every measure by every metric things are getting better and crime is dropping in every almost every big city and for the most part broadly speaking people are healthier living longer like it's a, it's a really good time to be alive and I think it's worthwhile to stop and say, okay, where's humanity holding and where's the Jewish nation holding? I think we hear a lot about the idea of Messiah and the idea of the world achieving perfection. And it seems like it's far off. It seems like, you know, there's so many problems in our nation and in the world at large that it can't be we're near some sort of utopian endgame, a destination where the world achieves its perfection. There are problems, yes. But I think every once in a while, it's worthwhile to look at the at the positive aspects. And I, I made a list here of a few things that I would want to mention, just to show how the Jewish communities worldwide really are, are remarkable, and really are a light unto the nations. 
But I have a friend in, in New York, and he joined a registry many years ago uh, where they tested his um, they tested his genes or they tested him to find out uh, just a little bit of his uh, biological makeup. And then he gets a uh, letter or a phone call that there is a woman who he does, know, does not know who is 33 years old, and she lives in Boston, and she has several children, and she is dying of kidney failure. And you have an exact perfect match. Everything, like one in 10 billion match. All six markers, 100%. Perfect. Total strangers, are you going to give her your kidney? And he's like, absolutely. An altruistic gift of a kidney. And now the truth is, it's like logical. Like you have, the Almighty gives you two kidneys and you only need one. It's like, imagine the Almighty gave you two brains. Maybe that's not a good example. But you have four arms. I don't know. You have extra organs and they're people and you don't need them. You could function perfectly fine. In fact, what I found when I was speaking to my friend is that the people who actually donate their kidneys have a lower risk of kidney failure than people who have two healthy kidneys. And the reason for that is because generally when there's kidney failure, it affects both of them. And someone who has only one kidney is more likely to be on top of their health and therefore less likely to have kidney failure and if one kidney is more than enough. And the only, the only increased risk is if, God forbid, someone's in a car accident and it happens to hit them on the side where their remaining kidney resides. But I was talking to him and he's telling me that like this is so common in the Jewish community where people just give kidneys to absolute strangers. And what I found when I researched it is that the community that is most pronounced by far in the field of altruistic kidney donations is the Torah observant community in the world. Like to me, like this is, this is a testament to the fact that Torah actually works in changing people, making them better people. Like this is proof. The proof is in the kidneys. Uh, that people are willing to do that. And yes, of course, it makes sense. And why should people not want to do that? But people don't do it. And people who have Torah and have a sensitivity to the to the lessons of Torah, they actually put their kidneys where their mouth is. And my, my mother told me like, oh, yeah, you have a bunch of cousins who donated their kidneys. I didn't even know, but people don't make a big deal about it. They did have a kidney. They did have a kidney. They did have a kidney. To me, like, just, it's, again, another marker about the fact that we do indeed have Something really remarkable going for for our nation, you know the the fifth largest city in Israel is a city called Bnei Brak. It's on the outskirts of Tel Aviv. It is by far the poorest city in Israel, and it's the most religious city in Israel. Now we know in America, you could actually track if you were to just put on one side of the graph poverty and economic pain and distress, and you just map that out with a another graph of crime and violent crime, you'll find that it's almost exactly like proportional. Where there is poverty, there's crime. So you'd imagine if you have the poorest city in Israel, probably the city with the most crime. But the truth is it's the city with the least crime. Not only that, they don't even have a police force because violent crime is almost unheard of. Almost unheard of. But they do have a guy who's in charge of lost and found. Because people find something and they want to know who, who they bring it to the cops, so to speak. That's his job. He's like lost and found. Uh, he, he's the go-between. He's the proxy. To me, again, like this is another incredible just thing to, to, to analyze. How is it possible that the this city butts the trend where every other city of its kind 
would be a hotbed of criminal activity, uh, yet here it doesn't exist. There's no violent crime. There's you know, there's no murder. There's no gains. None of that. No gain-related shootings. It, it doesn't exist. Why? And I think, again, this is this shows us a little bit about the positive side of, of the Jewish community and, and, and what Torah does to, to people. You know, it, we believe the Torah makes us civilized. The Torah is God's instructions of how to thrive as a human and how to thrive under even very challenging conditions. And thus, people who have Torah are not going to go to a life of crime. It's just That's just the way it is. Again, broadly speaking, we have – there's a mitzvah in the Torah to give charity. And we're told that people should try to give 10% of the money to charity. I know that people in the Jewish world actually give 10% of the money to charity. And, and, and it's real. We had in our community, there was an individual who um, is uh, economically challenged and their daughter got engaged. And they, they need to make a wedding for their daughter. Very expensive. In a jiffy, they raised, I think, twenty-five dollars or $30,000. Because people just ponied up the money. And where else does that exist? Where else does that exist besides for the Jewish communities where uh, where there's a sensitivity toward, towards charity on these enormous scales? Not just giving art to museums, but like really helping those who are less fortunate and those who are downtrodden. In Houston, there's a Houston Free Loan Association. Every Jewish community has to have a Free Loan Association. Okay, so how much money is there in the coffers of the Free Loan Association? It's a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is amazing. Very nice. People want to start a business. People need help with the mortgage. Get some guarantors. Get a free loan. Amazing. In Israel, and I'm sure it exists elsewhere, but I know of one free loan association that it's not dealing with hundreds of thousands. It's dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars. And they actually have like – it's a bank with tellers where people are just coming in and borrowing – Enormous sums of money every day. Like it's no big deal. Like totally interest free, provided you have some guarantors who are willing to to vouch for you and to accept that they'll pay if you don't. And they put you on a payment plan. They and it's just so routine. It's just routine. But again, it's it, it's a community of of kindness. It's a community of Torah, and that results in a community of kindness. In the poor but religious cities in Israel, there is more charity in a given day than in some of the, some of the non-religious but very wealthy cities in Israel that it just there in a year. Like that's just the fact on the ground. It's worth every once in a while to think about what, the good stuff that are happening in our community. I think we get coddled into thinking that whatever exists now is normal. And whatever just now has always existed. But I think that if we think about the fact that the state of Israel is extant and what it means where Jews who were almost entirely gone from their land and just had a faint pipe dream to go back to Israel and talked about it in their prayers and talked to – and that was the like final line of every speech. Let's go back to Jerusalem. That's the, thing, the last thing we say on Pesach. And that's here in Jerusalem. Like that was a hope and a yearning, but really it, it was abstract. It, it wasn't in the real world. And today we live in a world where 6 million Jews actually live in, in the land of Israel. And it's a thriving country. What does that say about where the world is heading to? What does it say that 
with overnight, essentially, within 100 years, there's a hundredfold increase of Jews living in Israel. Well, what does that say? And the fact that the, the Jews are, are consolidating, and we talked about it in, the, in our prayers, bring us from all corners of the of the world, bring us back together. You know, we, we've been scattered and we've been spread out throughout the world, and now and now we're kind of coming back together. Like, what does it say about where our nation is holding? Uh, the fact that Jerusalem is reunited, I think, is also significant. Now, today, there is in the Knesset, in the Parliament in Israel, there's a bill called the Jewish Nation-State Bill, which is a few essential laws that they want to establish about characterizing the nation uh, as a Jewish nation. So for one, for example, they get rid of of Arabic as an official language. Why should Arabic be an official language of the state of Israel? There's plenty of other countries that have Arabic as their official language. That's just one idea. But uh, an additional idea is this movement to try to make Israeli law more compatible with Torah law and to say that Israeli law takes its inspiration from Torah law, uh, amongst other initiatives to try to kind of really bring the state of Israel, which has a very secular, socialist roots, but to bring it towards what we've been talking about for so long, a Jewish nation, not just a nation comprised of Jews, but a nation that lives by the principles of the Jewish people. And I think it's, I think it's happening. It's happening demographically, uh, and it's happening politically as well. And I think it's just worthwhile, everyone, again, every once in a while, to just stop and just say, okay, where are we holding as a nation? Where is this, where is this uh, coming to? Today, there's more people who are f- invested in full-time development and furthering of Torah than maybe at any point in the last 2,000 years. You know, when the state was founded, there were 400 full-time, full-time Torah students in the, in, in, in the nation. And there was a famous compromise, an agreement called the famous status quo agreement, where Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, the founding father of Israel, he had a meeting with the leader of the Torah Jews in Israel, the Chazon Ish, and they agreed that these 400 students are going to be exempt from army service, which was Torah to Manato, people whose study of Torah is their life's pursuit, they should be exempt from the army. Now, this is a very contentious issue today, because now there's not 400 students, there's much closer to 400,000 students who are doing this full-time. And that's causing all kinds of demographic problems because it's a growing number and it's a good problem to have because there's more people who are invested in in advancing Torah in the land. And they have to come up with all these compromises to get more of these people into the army or else the army is not going to have enough soldiers. Now, that, of course, is a very hot political controversy today in the land. But I think it does say that the Jewish nation as a whole and the Jewish nation in Israel as a whole is getting closer to the ideal that was dreamed up by our ancestors over the course of thousands of years, a Jewish nation in a land, not just a nation of Jews, but a, but a nation that really embodies the Jewish ideals and the Jewish traditions and tries to live by those, by those principles. So I think, I think there's a, a good story to tell here. There's many bad things. There's many crises in the world and in our nation. 
that is definitely true. But I think it's important every once in a while to look back and just look, look at the positive. It's not, it doesn't sell. You know, they say in newspapers, if it bleeds, it leads. That's the line. Right? If there's some death or some murder or some horrific homicide, that's the first thing on the news. Because that sells. And that makes people terrified. If people are terrified, you win as the publisher. But if you actually look out holistically at where the world is holding, where the nation is holding, I think we're very much on our way towards Tikkun Olam, towards achieving a, a fixed world. And I think, you know, we have to, of course, push it over that last little hump, that last, you know, that final effort we need to do as a nation uh, to bring the world towards its completion. But I think we're well on our way. So that's just a positive message that's, I think, worthwhile of dwelling upon.